0: Alright, good morning. Glad to be back with you all today. It was Sorry I was out of town last week, but it was nice to get a break. And it was actually nice to sit and hear some preaching from the very same chapter of the Bible that I'm preaching through now, and just to get a little bit different take on it. So it was, it was refreshing. So I trust you guys enjoyed your time. I think Bob shared something last week, so I'm sure it was good. And the Lord used it uh, at the place and time it needed to be preached. Um, Do you guys have your outline that we started on last time? We're almost done with it. It's on the second page. If you do, we're going to pick up there. Last time as we got into chapter 5, we began by noting the introduction of this seven-sealed scroll the importance as evidenced by John's weeping when no one was found worthy to open the scroll, its importance as evidenced by the praise that was elicited when the Lamb stood forth and showed Himself worthy. We talked about the location of the scroll, where it was at the beginning of the chapter, and then we kind of backed off of specifics and looked at a, what I call it a thematic backdrop, if you look at chapters 4 and 5, which I believe take place chronologically during an undisclosed period of time between the rapture of the church, as prefigured in John's rapture, of verse 1, and the beginning of Daniel's 70th week, or the tribulation that starts in Revelation 6.1. So I believe these two chapters are parenthetical and they take place in an undisclosed period of time. We don't know based upon what the Scriptures teach when the rapture will take place prior to the tribulation and we don't know how much time will intervene between that event and the start of the tribulation which is when Antichrist signs a peace treaty with the nation of Israel. We get that from the prophecy in Daniel which we will look at As we get into chapter 6. But I wanted to back off and look at these two chapters as a whole. And we just looked at how certain themes concerning God and the Lamb are emphasized in these chapters. And when we looked at those themes, it was pretty easy to conclude that the scroll, whatever it is in chapter 5, is directly tied to God's program of redemption for the world. It's made abundantly clear that God is the owner and the Creator. It's made abundantly clear that He is worthy to rule and He possesses authority over the earth. And then it's also made abundantly clear that the Lamb, Jesus, redeemed something, not only mankind but the earth itself, and that He too is worthy as a result of the redemption price that he paid to rule and possess the same authority that God has. So in other words, this scroll must be tied to God's plan of redemption for the world. And then we got into some other scriptural testimony about um, the, the, the theme of redemption and, and, and things related to this conclusion. And we talked about Ephesians 1, how there is a possession which was purchased and waiting to be redeemed. In other words, yet future. Wasn't talking about the souls of men because Ephesians chapter 1 speaks of this as having been done before the foundation of the world in God's sovereignty. Then we looked at Romans 8. And Romans 8 is very clear that creation itself groans and travails for redemption. Not just us. It's not just man that Christ came to redeem its creation itself and creation groans waiting to be redeemed and I talked about how Jewish tradition spoke of a seven year period before Messiah's coming to earth to reign in which is is referred to as the birth pangs of Messiah and the imagery there is the birth pangs that are painful and they get greater and greater and more regular prior to birth and it's very difficult and then the birth comes And all that is as if it didn't even happen or it was well worth the trial and travail. And Jewish tradition always saw a seven-year period of trial and travail preceding the coming of Messiah. And this is actually testified of in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we have these themes from Scripture elsewhere that work into what we've already concluded from Revelation 4 and 5. And then I ended the last time I was here Briefly talking about the Old Testament laws given to Israel. We can look at these laws and they show us the character of God, and often they give us a glimpse into His plan and program for the world. So, couched within the laws and the feast and the things given to Israel, we can see God's plan. for for the world and His relationship with the earth through Messiah. That's why we can look at the feast in Leviticus and see how these not only um, were given to Israel to observe each year, but within that calendar, we see God's entire plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ fulfills each of those feasts in His time. The spring feasts have already been fulfilled. I believe He'll fulfill the latter fall feast at His coming, beginning with the rapture, which is the fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets. I want to look at three Old Testament laws given to Israel related to redemption. And the reason why I'm getting getting into this is because I think it sheds light on the identity of this scroll and what is taking place in Revelation 4 and 5. And then when we understand what this scroll is and the significance of the Lamb taking it opening it and later reading it, we're going to see that everything that follows in Revelation is tied directly to chapter 5. It can't be separated. It's all referring to a specific uh, uh, future time. It's not some spiritual language that rehashes the same prophecies over and over again that were fulfilled before 70 AD as some people teach. If you know and understand this scroll, you can't possibly hold a preterist interpretation of Revelation. And I think the scriptures indicate uh, abundant evidence um, so that we can properly identify what is happening. So today I want to look at some Old Testament laws relating to redemption. In the Old Testament, in the Torah that God gave to Israel, there were statutes and judgments related to the redemption of a wife, related to the redemption of a slave from debt and related to the land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants itself concerning a wife somebody turn. Bob would you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 5 this is a very old principle that God gave to Israel in the law concerning the preservation of a man's seed and we also can see that this principle was observed long before the law was given at Sinai, even in the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what does God say in Deuteronomy 25.5? Okay, so if a man had a wife and the man died and had no children, it was the responsibility of the man's kinsman, his near kinsman, if he had a brother, if he didn't have a brother, a near kinsman, to come in and take the widow and raise up seed to her dead husband. It was a, so to preserve his life. We see an amazing example of this later in the, New Te- in the Old Testament. Uh, anybody know where that is? It's in a little book in the Old Testament that actually shows us an example of how a man faithfully executed his responsibility as a kinsman redeemer. Ruth, the story of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth was a Moabite woman who was married to a man of Israel. And her mother-in-law and her, her, her husband and his brother and her father-in-law had come and left Israel because of a famine in the land, and, and Naomi's sons had gotten married, and in the process of time, Naomi's husband died, and her two sons died while they were outside the land. At that point, she decided to return and told her daughters-in-law, who were not Israelites, that they were free to return to the houses of their fathers and marry, and, and not to feel any obligation. And, and one of the daughters did go back, but Ruth chose to stay, and there's that great promise of loyalty there in the book of Ruth where uh, Ruth says to Naomi in verse 16, I've heard this used in a marriage ceremony a lot, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee, for whither thou goest I will go, and where thou lodgest I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. So in that amazing testimony of allegiance, Ruth followed Naomi back to the land of Israel without a husband, without children, Naomi without any Uh, um, heirs whatsoever in her family and they went back to Israel and then the story shows about how um, Ruth met this man Boaz and it turned out that Boaz was a kinsman of Ruth's dead husband and therefore there was opportunity for him to take Ruth to be his wife and raise up seed however there was a kinsman nearer than Boaz who had the opportunity And the nearest kinsman turned it down, and so Boaz performed that duty of redemption where Ruth was concerned and gave her children. It's very interesting because that act, that sacrificial, selfless act of Boaz is what led to what figure in Israel's history? I'm not talking about Jesus. David. Okay? Ruth married Boaz. Okay? Boaz... And Ruth gave birth to Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. And then we trace it on down, of course, to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Very interesting how God brought a Gentile pagan into the line of Christ because of her faithfulness. And not just Ruth, there are actually three bridges to the Gentiles in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Three bridges from Abraham to the Gentiles. Does does anybody know who they were? One of them was Ruth. Rahab the harlot from Jericho, and did you know that that was actually Boaz's mother? Okay, Salmon married Rahab, who was the harlot that hid the spies in Jericho. Salmon was the father of Boaz. So he had seen, he had had a Gentile mother, and so that probably gave him tenderness where Ruth was concerned. But there was one more, and this was actually prior to the giving of the law, and it's a demonstration of the importance of a brother or a near kinsman to raise up seed to his dead kinsman. The book of Genesis, chapter 38. Who was involved there? Judah. It was Judah and Tamar. Tamar was a Canaanite woman. Rahab was a Canaanite woman. Ruth was a Moabitess that God brought into the genealogy of Christ because of their faithfulness. In Genesis, chapter 38, um, Judah married a Canaanite woman and had children. Judah was very young at the time. He was probably about 16 years old when he got married and he had three children very quickly thereafter. His oldest son, Ur, it says, was wicked in the sight of the Lord so God killed him. Yeah, God does kill people. God does slay people. It's very clear. Ur was wicked and God slew him. And Ur's wife was Tamar. She had no children. So it was the responsibility of Judah's second-born, Onan, to go in there and raise up seed to his brother. And this was understood to be right and righteous, something that God required. Well, Onan didn't want to do it because he knew the seed wouldn't be his, and he was young, probably only about 15 years old. And so he spilled his seed on the ground, and God killed him. Not because it's wrong to spill your seed on the ground, but because he was disobedient and refused to honor that, this law of redemption for a wife. And then Judah promised, Well, you know what, if you'll go and hide yourself in the, in the home of your fathers and remain, and remain uh, um, celibate, when my thirdborn gets old enough, I'll give him to you to marry, and then, then you can raise up children. And of course, Judah kind of forgot about this. I think Shayla was probably only about 12 or 13 at the time. A couple years went by and he just kind of forgot about it. And then Judah's wife died. And so it says he was comforted. And in the in that period of mourning and then getting over the grief, he lapsed and was in a visiting some friends in the land of Canaan, and he saw what he thought was a harlot on the side of the road and he went into her and said, what, what do I need to give you to be able to come into you? And she, he claimed he'd give her something from his flock and so she took his staff and his signet and said, I'll hold these as collateral until you bring me what you promised, then you can come in unto me. Well, that harlot was really not a harlot. That was Tamar who disguised herself. And in doing so, she was going to ensure that seed was raised up as it was supposed to be. So Judah later went in unto her thinking she a prostitute. She was pregnant. She became pregnant. And when he found out, he thought, well, my daughter-in-law has played a harlot. You know, we need to. if this is true, we need to have her burnt, killed. And then when she came out, she says, by who, whoever owns these pieces of property, he's the one that came in unto me. And at that moment, Judah recognized, whoa, I failed you. I didn't give you my third youngest son like I promised. And so you've had more faith than me. And you've come in and assured that your husband, that there would be seed raised up to your husband. And so it was great. We look at it from the outside and think, man, that's kind of wicked. But no, it was was um, an act of faith. And then it says that Judah didn't know her or have relations with her anymore. And out of that relationship, she gave birth to twins. And one of those twins was in that genealogy that would eventually produce Boaz and Obed, Jesse, David, and Jesus. So it was evidence of this law of redemption concerning a wife where if the husband died and she she had no children it was the responsibility of a near kinsman to raise up seed unto her. Now that's something that's very strange and foreign to our culture but it's something that was very important in the ancient Near East in their cultures. Family meant a whole lot more back then than it does today. Today people don't care about raising up children. They don't care about their descendants. They don't care about uh, giving a line or that a line would continue in a family. Today all we care about is the here and now. That's why people can throw their unborn children away at these abortuaries left and right and have no conscience about it. That's why people can be so selfish that they think well I'm not going to be able to provide for this child so I'll just give him up for adoption. Because there's no, there's no concept of family beyond the present. And in those days they thought a family not only from the past, great respect was given to elders and those that came before. Sometimes that was perverted in cultures where they would worship their ancestors. God never intended that. Great respect was given to the present generation and there was care for the future generations. We used to care in this country about our future generations that they would be be able to come up in a land of freedom where they could learn about the things of God. That's why our nation was established, but people don't care about that anymore. It's kind of an indictment against our culture to read about these things in the Old Testament law. But anyway, there was a provision given for the redemption of a wife. I believe that this law of redemption was ultimately fulfilled in Christ concerning the wife, which is the church, concerning His bride, the church. Um, Matthew, would you look up Acts twenty twenty eight, please? Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which He hath purchased with His own blood. So in other words, God has blood. Jesus wasn't just a man. God has blood. God purchased the church with His blood. That's one of the most important verses in the entire New Testament. It tells us God has blood and that He purchased the church with His blood. We know that the church is the wife of the Lamb. That imagery is used throughout Revelation. That word is used. We know that the church is the bride of Christ. Christ purchased His bride with His own blood. He redeemed His wife. And that's why it's important for those that lead the flock, the shepherds and the pastors of God's churches, to feed that flock, to nourish them, not to lord themselves over the flock, but to lead as an example or by example. These preachers that have set themselves up as little dictators these so called good old Baptist boys that'll preach against Catholicism and the Pope, and yet they've set themselves up as a Pope in their church, ruling or lording over God's heritage. No way. We're supposed to feed the flock because God purchased that bride with His own blood. So, redemption concerning a wife took place at the cross when Christ purchased. His bride with His own blood. In John chapter 14, that great passage where Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And when I return, I will receive you unto Myself. That is all imagery taken from a Jewish wedding. That is a bridegroom talking to his bride. I've purchased you. I'm betrothed to you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then I'm going to come and take you. I'm going to whisk you away in the night and bring you to a place in my Father's house where the wedding will be consummated. And of course, we know later that the bride and groom return together and make a public declaration. The Jewish wedding. 1 Thessalonians 4, the rapture, talked about there. The imagery is of the bridegroom returning with his bride. I mean, coming and snatching His bride and taking her away. Exactly what Jesus Christ describes in John 14. And then look at Revelation 5.9. At this point in the book, redemption in terms of the wife has already been fulfilled. Revelation 5.9. It says, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book "...and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and thou hast redeemed us to God." Hast redeemed. In the past, those those elders who represent the redeemed of history have been redeemed as the wife. The church is there in heaven. The wife had already been redeemed in the past. Okay? So, redemption concerning a wife was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There's a second type of redemption in the Old Testament. Anthony, would you look up Exodus chapter 21, verse 2? Daniel, Deuteronomy 15, verses 12 through 15. Now, these entire chapters here, Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 15, go into it's the whole chapter talks about the relationship of a slave in Israel, why he was a slave, and how the slave could be redeemed. So there's a second type of redemption, the redemption of a slave who was a slave to debt. What does it say in Exodus 21:2? If thou buy a Hebrew servant six years he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. Okay, if there was a Hebrew servant, this was someone who became enslaved because he couldn't pay his debts. He was to serve his master to pay off the debts for six years. And in the seventh year, it was the year of redemption. He was to go free. That slavery to debt was not to be perpetual. In the seventh year, he was to go free. Okay? That was a principle of redemption for the slave. Deuteronomy 15, 12-15. And if thy brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, be sold unto thee and serve thee six years, then in the seventh year thou shalt let him go free from thee. And when thou sendest him out free from thee, thou shalt not let him go away empty. Thou shalt furnish him liberally out of thy flock, and out of thy floor, and out of thy wine breast, of that wherewith the Lord thy God hath blessed thee, thou shalt give unto him. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. Therefore I command thee this thing today. God redeemed Israel out of slavery from Egypt. And they were to remember that by providing for the redemption of those enslaved because of debt in their own country. Notice something that Deuteronomy adds to the principle given in Exodus. Not only in the seventh year was the slave to go free, but he wasn't to go free empty. The master was to provide him liberally with such as would allow him to establish himself in his own self-sufficiency. There are those out there that lay false accusation against the Word of God. Wicked people who hate God, who deny His existence. They look at the Bible and they say, oh, some who call themselves Christians. Talk about how the God of the Old Testament was so rude and mean and there was slavery in the Old Testament and they want to compare it to the slavery that came out of Africa and that existed around the world. That's not the slavery. The way slaves were treated coming out of Africa couldn't be justified from the Word of God. Slavery in the Word of God was directly tied to debt. Same type of slavery we have today, people don't even know they're enslaved. So many are enslaved not only to the government, you know, if you're if you're living on government assistance, you're a slave to the government. Period. The borrower, those who are in debt to the mortgage companies, those who are in debt to the banks for college loans and all that, the borrower is a slave to the lender. That's not your house. You can't do whatever you want to do with your house. It's the bank's house until you pay it off. We have that same type of slavery today. But God not only provided for the redemption of the slave, but He provided so that they could be freed and provided for in such a way they could live self-sufficiently. One of the big problems and one of the big things they couldn't figure out in the South during the years of Confederacy There was a great cry in the southern government urging President Davis and the Congress to be the first to free the slaves. Please do it before they make some sort of emancipation proclamation in the north because that will fare well for us if we take the moral high road. That was an argument that was had many hours in the Confederate Congress. That's history. If you don't believe it, go look it up. Be willfully ignorant if you want to. That's fine. But they couldn't figure out how to do it because you couldn't just free slaves and turn them out into the world. How would they provide for themselves? How would they eat? Where would they work? What would they do? And so there was this desire to try to figure out what to do and they couldn't come up with an answer. We've got to be able to do something to compensate the master, to, to make sure that there's not we, we don't just increase the poverty of the land. So I mean, those were difficult things that people couldn't figure out and it took a war and reconstruction to finally settle it all but God didn't provide for the freedom of slaves so they could just go out and be poor and find themselves right back in that position the master was to provide for his slaves not just the male slaves but the women as well so this idea that women were treated differently by God in the Old Testament women and men have different roles But women, even the female slaves, were valued enough that God said whether he's a male Hebrew servant or female, let him be freed and let him be provided for. That's the righteous God of the Bible. There was redemption for a slave. Serve six years, be faithful to your master, repay your debts, and be freed in the seventh year. And you'll be freed and provided for so that you can go out and live self-sufficiently. Well, we know that Christ exercise the law of redemption for a wife at the cross I believe that at the rapture Christ exercises the law of redemption concerning a slave If the spirit or the soul is freed from the penalty of sin because of what Christ did at the cross what is freed from the slavery or the bondage of sin at the rapture The body of the believer at the rapture is freed from the presence of sin or the bondage of sin we still must endure the old man and if we're not careful we can fall back into that bondage it's still present the flesh our spirit is redeemed at the cross by grace through faith that's a gift of God anyway at the rapture the body is redeemed from the slavery to the debt of sin We see this in 1 Corinthians 15, 51-53. Revelation 20, verse 6, look what it says there concerning the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with Him a thousand years. The first resurrection is the redemption of Christ. The, the, the redemption law related to the slave. And it has to do with the body of the believer. Now there are some that looking at God's principle of Sabbath rest, we know God created the earth in six days, and on the seventh day He rested. And God valued that seventh day as a time of rest, and as a result God gave the law of Sabbath to Israel as a sign between Him and Israel. It's very clear that that's one of the Ten Commandments that was between God and Israel. It's not between God and the Gentiles. It's very clear in the book of Exodus and the book of Ezekiel that that's a sign between God and Israel. But that Sabbath that God commanded Israel reflected back on the principle of Sabbath rest that God exercised when He created the world. And so there are some that would say, well, man... Is in God's program of redemption for the world is to be a slave to the curse of sin for 6,000 years. And in the 7th millennium, just like the 7th day will be a period of rest when God is incarnate and reigns and rules over the world and it returns to its original state. That Some of that's Jewish tradition. And so there's this idea that sometime around 2000 A.D., should be the start of the millennium and that we would be living in the last days now. If you go back and look at those charts that Clarence Larkin did that I said could be very helpful, they were done in the 1920s and he's got a chart on there that shows the the week of human history. Six thousand years of man in bondage to the curse of sin, followed by the millennial reign of Christ, which fulfills the Sabbath rest. And these things are you know they reflect it makes sense to me that, that, that God's chronology for world history would reflect the creation week. But obviously, 2000 A.D. has already passed. Okay, Larkin put a, 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 a chart together in 1920 that shows 2000 A.D. to 3000 A.D. as being the millennial reign of Christ. He never claimed he was a prophet. He never claimed that this was prediction of the future. It was what he believed was the result of scriptural teaching. Now, this was written in the 1920s. Obviously, it didn't play out like that. But I don't think that means he was wrong. What we've got to understand is that if man is predisposed to 6,000 years of slavery to sin, that wouldn't have started with creation. It would have started with the fall. We don't know how much time went by between the creation of Adam and Eve on the sixth day and the actual fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. And then you've also got to consider that if God's ultimate Sabbath rest is God dwelling with men as Jesus Christ does in the millennium, we have to remember there was about a 33-year period in human history where God dwelt with men once. And so it could be argued that 33 years have to be subtracted from the timeline because God dwelt with men once when He walked the dusty roads of Galilee for 33 years. And so those arguments could be made. Plus our calendar's messed up, so we don't really know. You can't say at this point in time in um, uh, February of 2014 that Larkin was wrong because we don't know where the calendar should be. So it takes take about 30 to 40 years to see if God if the Sabbath rest is going to be from the 6,000th to the 7,000th uh, uh, window of human history. But folks, God always uses parentheses in His uh, prophetic programs anyway. The church age is a huge parenthesis in the program of the 70th weeks for Israel so we don't we don't these principles stand even though God's time schedule is not man's time schedule It doesn't mean somebody asked me about that chart last week I'm really excited because there are people that are listening to these messages around the world and I had some very um, fruitful correspondence with a brother from South Africa who was asking me some questions about some things that were being taught and he asked about that chart. Well, you know, Larkin had this chart, the 7,000 years of human history, and it said that in 2000 AD would start the Millennial Kingdom, and that didn't happen. So isn't it possible that Larkin could have made mistakes somewhere else? And I was like, well, he was just a man. He never claimed to be a prophet. I said, I think the principle is there, but the Scriptures don't declare by default that man would exist under the curse for 6,000 years, and the Sabbath would be the Millennial reign of Christ. It makes sense... But we don't know the chronology. We don't know the calendar. And yes, Larkin could have made a mistake. I still think his charts were helpful and I think you'd be wise to look at them. But people are men and that's why we have to judge everything by the Word of God. That's just an interesting side note related to the redemption uh, from slavery is this idea that man would be a slave to sin for 6,000 years and then the Sabbath rest. When man is freed from that in the millennial kingdom will be the fulfillment Now, I I believe the principles make sense and I believe that we are in the last days and that could still hold true because we don't know when the fall took place. Then you had Christ walking the earth for 33 years and the calendar's messed up. So I don't really know. It's obvious that we're living in the latter times by many other things that we see all around us. So the law of redemption mentioned in the Old Testament was fulfilled in Christ at the cross when he purchased his bride the church with his blood. The law of redemption as relating to a slave was fulfilled or is fulfilled in Christ at the rapture when the body of the bride is freed from the bondage of sin. But that's not the only laws of redemption. There's another law of redemption in the Old Testament that's actually given a lot more space, a lot more discussion in the Torah. And that is the law of redemption concerning the land of Israel. And I don't know if you guys had a chance to go read Leviticus 25. I kind of gave you that for homework a couple weeks ago. God made provision for the land of Israel's redemption so that it would stay in the possession of the people to whom God gave it to, the, the descendants of Abraham. Not only within the Jewish people but that the tracts of land given to the various tribes could be redeemed to ensure that they stayed within the original tribes to whom they were given. Now it's this redemption of the land that we want to look at more specifically because it there's some parallels between God's program of redemption for Israel and then what I believe is his program of redemption for the world. And it's the redemption of the land that is related directly to this scroll in the hand of God. Because at the point where John sees the scroll and the lamb comes and takes it, redemption of the bride has already happened in the past because those that have been redeemed are praising God about the redemption that happened in the past. The redemption of the body has already happened because the raptured saints are in heaven. Thou hast redeemed us out of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And so there's a a, a future redemption that awaits from the perspective of Revelation 5, and I believe it's related to the land. Just kind of an interesting side note, um, I saw an article, um, apparently there was a a debate this week uh, between Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis and then this Bill Nye, the science guy, it was a well-publicized debate debating um, biblical creationism with the theory of evolution and I didn't get to see it and usually in those type of debates when you have someone that knows what they're talking about concerning the scriptures and observable science the evolutionist ends up looking like a fool and I've heard that was the case here but shortly after that interview I was real disappointed because Pat Robertson of the 700 Club came out and made some very stupid statements about Christians who believe that the earth is approximately 6,000 years old. And he said that people like, like me and, and many of you who believe that make Christianity a joke and that science has proven that the earth is millions of years old and that in his mind, he's okay with the concept of a big bang. He just believes God's the one that did it. And he, he ended up looking like a fool because he showed not only a lack of knowledge concerning scientific evidence for evolution, but he showed a lack of knowledge concerning the biblical chronology and how that an old earth idea or theistic evolution not only attacks the literal reading of the book of Genesis, it attacks the whole plan of salvation. It attacks the book of Romans that claims that death didn't come into the world until sin came into the world. It attacks Statements made in the New Testament where it said that Enoch was the seventh from Adam. So if there were gaps in the genealogy, then Jude is wrong and we can't trust any of that. If there were gaps and theistic evolution is true, then Jesus was a liar because He said Adam and Eve were in the beginning. I don't know how a man in that position, unless he's so old that he's senile and he needs to step down, could make such stupid statements like that. Do not take Pat Robertson seriously. I know my grandfather used to respect him years ago. and I think he ran for president once. But in recent years, he said some very dumb things. And he needs to just close his trap and go home. That's just my opinion. I'm sorry, but that was just ridiculous this week. I believe the earth is as old as the Bible declares it to be. I believe the earth is approximately 6,000 years old. We cannot know the actual date or specific year of any ancient historical event. It's impossible. But we can know within a few years, and I believe the Bible chronologies are there to tell us the history of the world, and I believe that a 6,000-year-old earth conforms with an abundant plethora of observable science, not philosophical theory. And that's what the 4.6 billion-year-old Earth is. It's philosophical theory that started with Charles Lyle, a philosopher who fancied himself a geologist in the 1800s. And scientific evidence has not proven this. It's just a rehashing of what was philosophized back in the 1800s that Darwin bought into. The scientific evidence has shown us otherwise, but you're not going to know that And people like Pat Robertson aren't going to see it because they don't care. They don't want to know. But it's there. And so I just want to affirm that the Bible, just like Revelation can be taken and understood literally as a common average person would read it and understand it, so can the book of Genesis. Period. Some of these so-called pastors need to just watch what they say because they make themselves look foolish. They make themselves look foolish. Anyway, concerning the land, let's look at Leviticus chapter 25 for a few moments. Leviticus 25. I just want to look real quickly at at a few verses. The principle is there throughout the whole chapter and it would be something interesting for you to revisit. It's talking about the land of Israel that God was going to give them in fulfillment of His promise to Abraham. And the land would be divided a certain way when Israel actually went into the land of Canaan after the wilderness wanderings. But in verse 23, "...the land that is Israel shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine. For ye are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession you shall grant a redemption for the land." So here we have this idea of redemption relating to the land. If thy brother be waxen poor, and hath sold away some of his possession, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, then shall he redeem that which his brother sold. And if the men have none to redeem it, and himself be able to redeem it, then let him count the years of the sale thereof, and restore the overplus unto the man to whom he sold it, that he may return unto his possession. But if he be not able to restore it to him, then that which is sold shall remain in the hand of him that hath bought it until the year of Jubilee." And in the jubilee it shall go out, and he shall return unto his possession. So God had a redemption program for the land in the nation of Israel. And this is what is being introduced here in Leviticus 25. Under the Mosaic law, there's something very important that God wanted them to understand very quickly. The land that you are going in to possess is not yours. It is mine. The land of Israel belonged to God. It belonged to God in the days of Abraham when He promised it to Abraham. It belonged to God when He gave the law from Mount Sinai. It belonged to God when Joshua took the people into the land and conquered it. It belonged to God in the days of the judges when the people turned from God and God brought in foreign invaders. It belonged to God during the days of David and Solomon in the divided monarchy. When Nebuchadnezzar came in there at the commandment of God and took the land, it still belonged to God. It belonged to God in the days of Jeremiah and Daniel when they were, and Ezekiel when they were dispersed from the land. It belonged to God in the days of Jesus when the Romans controlled it. It belonged to God when the British oversaw it prior to World War I and between World War One and World War II. It belonged to God in 1948 and it belongs to God now. It doesn't belong to the United States to divvy it up to... In to carve out a Palestinian state. It's God's. The land of Israel was God's. Israel was to be a tenant of this land of Canaan to administer the land as God's representatives. When we read what it says here that the land is mine, you are strangers and sojourners with me, in the land of your possession you shall grant a redemption for the land. It's very clear that Israel was not the owner she was to be the tenant possessor. Just like someone who rents a property, okay? For years, my wife and I have rented that property in Vale. My dad is the owner, was the owner, okay? That's his house. It's not my house to do with what I want to, but the tenant possession of that house was administered to me. I was the caretaker. I wasn't the owner. I was the renter, the tenant possessor. It's the same thing with Israel. It was the same thing with Israel. It was God's land. God was giving it to them so that they might administer it as tenants. God's representatives. The the government God gave Israel was not a democracy like we have here in America. It wasn't a constitutional republic. It was a theocracy. Israel was to administer God's land as God's representatives. And this theocracy was to be a light to the entire world of the God of the Bible. Well, when you have fallen man and you don't have theocracy, the next best thing is a representative democracy. And that's what we have here in America. And that's what what made the experiment our founding fathers brought to these shores so amazing. But even they understood that a representative democracy couldn't exist apart from a moral people who feared God. Those were the words of our founding fathers. But Israel was to be the tenant possessor. Their government was a theocracy. God intended to give Israel a king. God told Abraham, kings will come from you. God told Jacob that kings would be his descendants. But Israel wasn't willing to wait until the proper time. Saul was was man's choice. David was God's choice. In some ways, the argument could be made in the book of Acts that Matthias was man's choice to replace Judas and the Apostles, went. if they would have just been patient, God already had his choice, which was the Apostle Paul. Uh, that can be inferred there. But Israel was to be a theocracy. Since God was the owner forever of the land of Israel, and Israel were only to be tenants, but yet tenants forever, the land couldn't be sold forever. And that's what we see here in Leviticus 25. God... In God owned the land forever and He intended it to be Israel's forever. That is what was told Abraham, that it would be his and his seeds forever. If that's the case, then the land couldn't be sold forever. It couldn't be sold or occupied by a foreign invader forever. And it couldn't change hands forever. And that's where we have this redemption of the land come into play. The prohibition of a permanent sale Was on the basis that the property was not actually the possessor's to sell. He couldn't sell what he didn't own. So, someone in an Israelite couldn't sell what he didn't own, he was just a tenant. And that's why there was this redemption for the land where it wouldn't pass out of the air forever. Someone that rents from a landlord doesn't have the authority to go and sell it to someone else. You can get in some real trouble for that, it's not his to sell. Only the tenant possession in Israel could be sold for a temporary period of time. And this would happen to pay off debts and various other things. An Israelite could sell his tenant possession, but it was only a temporary sale. There was something in Israel called the year of Jubilee. It was every 50 years. And one of the things that was to happen in the year of J- Jubilee was the land apportioned to Israel by its tribes and families was to return to the original heir or the descendants of the original heir. So those apportions would stay the way God gave them forever. So in other words, if I bought a piece of land from someone who was desperate for money, I bought that tenant possession, I was able to administer that land for a temporary period of time and enjoy the fruits of it and prosper, but in the year of Jubilee, that land had to go back the one who sold it to me not sold back but given back so it was tenant possession only that could be sold to prevent the permanency of the tenant possession changing was the year of Jubilee the land returned to the original owner or heir every 50th calendar year not only could the land not be lost from the family of the original possessor forever but it could, or not only could the land not be lost forever, but it could not be lost to a person outside the original tribe. God apportioned the land of Canaan to the 12 tribes. And we see this uh, uh, when, when Joshua takes the people into the land. Okay? These apportions of land were to stay within the original tribe. We have an interesting uh, case in the book of Numbers. Turn to Numbers 27. In, the numbers, in Numbers 27, we have the law of inheritance. And we have a situation where there were some descendants in the tribe of Manasseh. There was a descendant in the tribe of Manasseh who had only daughters. He had no sons. And so the question was, what happens? Do we leave the land to the... Normally the land went to the son, but there was no sons. And so if it went to the daughter's husbands, then it could possibly go to someone outside the tribe and the land would change hands. And so these daughters of... Or this man, as was his name, or his daughters came uh, to Moses and said in verse 3, our father died in the wilderness and was not in the company of them that gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah. So he wasn't one of the rebels, but he died, did die in the wilderness. It says, but he died in his own sin and had no sons. Why should the name of our father be done away from among his family because he hath no son? Give unto us therefore a possession among the brethren of our father. And then Moses, they went to Moses and Moses brought this before the Lord and it says in verse 7, God said, Well, the daughters of Zelophehad speak right. Thou shalt surely give them a possession of an inheritance among their father's brethren and shalt cause the inheritance of their father to pass unto them. And then it goes on to say in verse 11, If a father have no brethren, then he shall give his inheritance unto his kinsmen that is next to him of his family, and he shall possess it, and it shall be unto the children of Israel a statute of judgment as the Lord commanded Moses. And so this is where the kinsman-redeemer comes in relating to the land. God made provision to where if there were no sons, but only daughters, if there were no children, the land would go to the nearest kinsman, whether it's just the daughter or a near kinsman to keep it as an inheritance within the original families. Okay, So God made provision that it wouldn't be lost to the original tribe. If you go over to Numbers 36, these daughters of Zelophehad come up again. At the end of Numbers, they come to Moses... And remind him in verse 2, Well, the Lord commanded my Lord to give the land for an inheritance by lot to the children of Israel. My Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelopheylite, our brother, unto his daughters. And then they say, well, what, what if these daughters marry people from other tribes? If they marry people from other tribes, then the land will pass to their children... And therefore, by default, move to another tribe because the children are the children of fathers from another tribe. Now what do we do to prevent this from happening? And this is where God comes in in verse 6 and says, This is the thing which the Lord doth command concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, Let them marry whom they think best, only to the family of the tribe their father shall they marry. So shall not the inheritance of the children of Israel remove from tribe to tribe. For every one of the children of Israel shall keep himself to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. So, in other words, the land wasn't to change hands between tribes. And so, the way to prevent that was the kinsman redeemer could come and purchase the land, or or would inherit the land. If there were daughters who married, there were daughters and no sons, then the daughters were to marry whoever they thought best, but only within their own tribe. And this would secure the land within the tribes that God gave it, as it was divided. Um, by state. Does any of that make sense? Do you understand what's kind of going on here? My point is that God not only intended the land to be Israel's as a tenant possessor forever, he intended the land that that he intended the tenant possessors from the various tribes to maintain that tenant's possession. It wasn't a change between tribes. Leviticus twenty five, you shall grant a redemption for the land. If you continue to read that whole chapter, you'll see that if poverty would drive an Israelite to sell his land or a portion of it, to pay off his debts or whatever, he retained the right to purchase it back at any time before the Jubilee if he was able. So in other words, if, if I sold my land because of my debts, I retained the right if I were able to get the money together to purchase it back. And the seller had to be willing to sell it back to me if I was able prior to the Jubilee. In the meantime, if I couldn't purchase it back... My kinsman had the right and the duty to redeem the land before the Jubilee. So it was a kinsman redeemer's responsibility to step in for his kinsman and purchase that land back to the family if he was able prior to the year of Jubilee. So it's very similar to the kinsman redeemer, or the Hebrew word is goel. It's very similar to what happened uh, with a wife. How did you buy it back? What was the redemption price? What well, says there in Leviticus, it teaches it that it equaled the purchase price plus the rent for years that the lease was supposed to run. So, if a man purchased it to buy it back, the purchase price included what he was able to lease it for, for the years remaining on the lease. And so the man that sold it back benefited from it. God didn't just rob somebody who fairly bought a piece of property. If the kinsman could buy it back, it was his duty to do it, and he would do it for a good price that would benefit the one who bought it originally. If the kinsman purchased this property prior to the Jubilee, it was the kinsman who administered it unto the Jubilee for his own purposes. In other words, if the kinsman bought it it back, it didn't go back to the original owner. It was the kinsman's to administer himself for his own purposes until the year of Jubilee, and in the year of Jubilee, it would go back to the original owner of the land or his family. So that's, that's what's discussed there in Leviticus chapter 25, and I think it's important for us to see these things because we're going to see that there are distinct parallels between God's program of land redemption for Israel and His program of land redemption for the world. So we need to remember that the land is God's. In Israel, the land was God's. Israel was the tenant possessor. They were not to lose their tenant possession forever. And tenant possession within tribes wasn't to change hand within tribes. If the land was lost, it was the kinsman redeemer's duty to buy it back and administer it until the year of Jubilee, at which time it went back. And so that tenant possession was perpetual. It wasn't to be lost. I think we have an example of this. A very interesting example that sheds light on Revelation 5 from the book of Jeremiah. We have Jeremiah who actually plays the part of a kinsman redeemer in terms of a piece of land that one of his relatives is selling. Um, it's 12.30. I don't want to get into this today. But if you want to go and read uh, this week uh, Jeremiah chapter 32... Um, it's actually, those verses that I put there, if you read, if you read the whole chapter, um, it'll give you a little more um, insight there in, in what God is trying to demonstrate. But Jeremiah was a near kinsman. He was given an opportunity to buy a parcel of a field in Anatoth and it was his duty to redeem it and we'll see how he actually redeemed it. He paid the purchase price and then some evidence... Jeremiah was in prison when this took place and Babylon, Babylon was about to take possession of the land of Israel and so it's not like this land deal was going to provide any immediate benefit for Jeremiah so it required that some evidence be drawn up to prove that it was his so that when he ever if he ever had opportunity in the future to actually take possession the proof of his ownership would be there and I think what happens here the nature of the evidence and all of that is a Microcosmic picture of what we're seeing in Revelation 5, and we're going to start to see how God's program for the land redemption of the world is foreshadowed in the land redemption program for Israel. So, anyway, we'll get into that next week. I'm at the very end of this outline, and so, in preparation for next week, if you, I, I did another one this morning and printed it up. If you want to take one of these, this talks about some specific parallels between God's program of land redemption for Israel and His program of redemption for the earth itself. And there's a lot of scriptural cross-references in here that you can take and, and study and see if you can get an idea of where we're going here. Alright, so please pass these around and, or, or pick one up afterwards if you'd like. There's, I think there's 20 copies here, so try to you know, make sure every, at least every family has one.